You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.church. And a good word it is. Stonegate, you may have a seat there. <clears throat> and it would be helpful if you went ahead and grabbed your Bible and turned to the book of Proverbs this morning. The book of Proverbs is where we're going to be. So why don't you grab your Bible and uh, take a look at that. And as you're doing that, uh, just a couple of things for you. First of all, if you are new with us this morning, my name is Rodney and I'm one of the pastors here at Stonegate. And it is such a joy and a privilege to have you this morning. And we're praying for you that the Lord would meet you in the ways that you in particular need today. Um, we all came in with needs and we come as a receiver asking the Lord to meet us in those. And we're praying that for you. And if you're new with us, what we do around here is really simple. We enjoy Jesus and we make disciples. And we would just love to have you as a part of that work that the Lord's doing in and among our church family. And if you'll just make sure if you're new, you grab one of these Connect cards. It should be in the seat backs in front of you. And during the service, if you'll fill out that Connect card, and, uh, and that at the end of the service, we'll pass around an offering basket. And you can put that Connect card in the basket at the end of the service, or better yet, you can take, uh, take it to the Connect Center, which is on the other side of that wall right there, and they'll exchange that for a gift for you if you'll do that. So um, that would allow us to follow up with you and serve you going forward, which we would just find that to be such a joy and a privilege to do. So if you'll do that, that would be great. Okay, today we are taking another step in our set of sermons called Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. Now I want to start the same way I've started every one of these sermons, by reminding you of the underlying conviction. And the underlying conviction is that we need the whole Bible to make whole Christians. We need the entire thing, Genesis to Revelation, the Old and the New Testament. And we need the whole Bible because the entire Bible, Old and New Testaments, are telling one grand story about one great person. And if you've been here for any length of time now, you know who that person is, right? His name is Jesus, right? The whole Bible is pointing at and telling the story of Jesus. So we as a church family this fall have been spending time together in the Old Testament, and we've just been learning together. What does it look like to see Jesus on every page of Scripture, in particular those of the Old Testament? And today we are in the book of Proverbs. <clears throat> now let me take one step back and think about Proverbs and the Old Testament as a whole. Because Proverbs is a part of the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is designed to point us forward to a Savior, to, to the Savior who will be the great prophet, the, the greatest of prophets, the greatest of priests, and the greatest of kings. The Old Testament is designed to do that, to point us forward to the great prophet, priest, and king. And the New Testament obviously tells us the name of this great prophet, priest, and king. His name is Jesus. But when you read the Old Testament, here's what you're going to find. There are some sections of the Old Testament that reveal, um, that reveal sinners in their desperation calling out for deliverance. And, and those sections of the Old Testament are pointing us forward to Jesus as the great king. That's what those sections of, of the Old Testament are doing. Other sections of the Old Testament reveal sinners crying out for a solution to their sin. Uh, we worked through the book of Exodus uh, recently. And that's what Exodus is doing. Think Exodus. It's the, the, the Old Testament uh, followers of Jesus crying out for some solution to their sin. And those sections in the Old Testament point forward to Jesus as our great high priest who dealt decisively and forever with our sin in his death. So you've got some Old Testament passages doing that. Uh, but other sections of the Old Testament reveal sinners looking for help in the fight against their foolishness. Uh, looking for help in, in what, do I, what do I think and believe about life. Uh, looking for help 
about what to speak and what to do in life. And if you want an illustration of that, think of the book of Proverbs. This is what Proverbs, written by Solomon, is doing. Solomon is the wisest man of his time, and he's imparting wisdom. And those sections of the Bible that are fighting against foolishness, telling us what to think and believe and speak and do, those are all pointing forward to Jesus as the greatest of prophets. And the New Testament makes clear that Jesus, in Jesus, we have one even greater than Solomon. Even greater than Solomon, a greater prophet than than even Solomon was. So, So Proverbs, think about Proverbs now. So Proverbs, like every book in the Old Testament, Every place in the Old Testament, every part of the Old Testament is pointing us forward to Jesus. And it points us forward to Jesus by pointing us toward wisdom. Now, what's wisdom? Wisdom is learning the art of living in a broken world. Wisdom is is learning how God has made the world to work and then living skillfully in that world that God has made. That's what wisdom is. And Proverbs deposits wisdom down into the details of our life. If you just read the Proverbs, and I would encourage you to do that maybe one a day. There's 31, so it kind of aligns nicely with a month. Just read a proverb a day, and you're going to find that it's dropping, depositing wisdom down into the details of money and laziness and our sexuality and our emotions and our words and our friendships. And it's that particular theme of friendships that I want to think through with you this morning friendships. And so today in Proverbs, thinking about friendship, it's going to come in two parts. Two parts. You need friends, part one, and you need the best of friends, part two. You need friends and you need the best of friends. So let's go part one. You need friends. One of my hopes this morning is to convince you of that, that you need friends. It doesn't matter if you're five or 95, you need, I want to stress that word need, you need Friends, the Bible makes this point from its beginning. And, and, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, the first three chapters of the Bible set up the remaining 1,186 chapters of the Bible. The the first three are that important. They're the setup for everything we read beyond uh, beyond those chapters. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we're introduced, in the first three chapters of the Bible, we're introduced to a God that exists in triune friendship. We see a God who exists like that in triune friendship. So in Genesis 1.26, we get to overhear God, in a sense, in Genesis 1.26, where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So the question should come up when you read Genesis 1.26, who is we? Who is the our in that passage? Who is we? Where is this plurality coming from? And when you read forward in the scriptures, you find God revealing himself um, as triune. So, so here's what the Trinity is. It comes in three parts. There is one God. The Bible affirms there is one and only one God. But that God exists in three persons. So one God existing in three persons, and each person is fully God. This is the way God reveals himself in a triune friendship. One God existing in three persons, each person fully God. And and that that triune God is in perfect friendship, Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's in the image of this relational God who has existed forever in friendship. 
That there's never been a moment where friendship didn't exist because God has always existed as a triune God in perfect friendship. And this re- relational God who's always existed in friendship, it, it's in the image of that God that we're made. We're made in the likeness of that, of that God. So it's not shocking to discover in Genesis chapter 2, God coming to Adam and saying, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good that you're alone. Now, now, why would it say that? Well, Genesis 1 and 2 is affirming you need friends. You, you do. I do. We all need friends. We, we need friends. And Genesis 1 and 2 show us why. We need friends because we were made for friendship. You need friends because you were made for friendship. This is how God has made you and wired you, hardwired you. you. You were made for friendship. This is the reason that solitary confinement is punishment, right? There's a reason for that, because you were made for friendship. Solitude and sanity can't coexist for long. There's a reason for that. You were made for friendship. You need friends because you were made for friendship. Sol- solitary confinement unravels a human being by withholding the very thing a human being needs, friendship. You were made for friendship. You, you need friends because you were made for it. Now, if you want to see that play out on a screen, all you need to do is re-watch the movie Castaway right? You see this dynamic playing itself out. Chuck Nolan has been stuck on a deserted island for four years, and he is so desperate for a friend, he makes one, right? And he makes one, and his name is Wilson. He just happens to be a volleyball, right? But, but this is showing you how, how desperate we are for friendship. You need friends because you were made for friends. One of the things that that Castaway reminds us of is the, of is the next time that we're asked that question, uh, you're stuck on a deserted, you know, deserted island, what are the five things you're going to take with you? Castaway reminds us one of those five better be a friend, right? Or we go crazy. You, you need friends because you were made for friends. You, you go crazy without them because you were made for friends. This is why the Bible praises friendship. In a lot of ways, the story of the Bible is carried along by friendship. Naomi has Ruth, David has Jonathan, Paul has Timothy, Jesus has his disciples. I I love how one commentator on the Bible says it. He says, according to the Bible, friendship is is an essential ingredient of the good life. No one in here wants um, a bad life. No one in here wants to purposely avoid human flourishing. We all want to flourish as human beings. And the Bible shows us one ingredient to human flourishing is friendship. So when we come to Proverbs, we would expect a book like Proverbs, a book meant to impart wisdom, to exalt the value of friendship. Right? We would expect that. And Proverbs doesn't disappoint. So here's Proverbs 18.24. A man of many companions may come to ruin. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, let's think that through for a moment. Here is ruin. What kind of ruin? Well, Proverbs 18.24 leaves that ambiguous. It doesn't define the ruin. So, So in a lot of ways, it's leaving it ambiguous because the ruin covers every sort of ruin that's out there. It could be financial ruin. Moral ruin, emotional ruin, marriage ruin, right? And, and we all know this about ourselves. We are all five minutes away from absolutely wrecking our lives. 
Ruin is never far from any of us. We are shockingly capable of ruin in our life. I am, you are, we all are shockingly capable of it. So what protects us from ruin? Well, this proverb shows us some things. Shows us what what won't protect us from it. What will not protect us from ruin is many companions. A lot of acquaintances in your life. That that will not protect you from ruin, this proverb is, is saying. But it also shows us what will protect us from ruin. A faithful friend. They'll protect you from ruin. A friend who sticks closer than a brother. This is one of the reasons we need friends. Not just, not just it would be a nice thing in your life, but no, no, you need friends. Now, remember, Proverbs is written into a familial culture. Family was everything in this culture. Family was, was massively important. And by saying a friend sticks even closer than a brother, this is Solomon dusting off the diamond of friendship and holding up its value for us all to see. This is what he's doing. He's trying to to show us just how valuable friends are in your life. Now, let me just stop here and ask you the question. Do you see friendships as this valuable? Do do, do you consider in your life friendships as this valuable? My experience in talking and walking beside people is that friendship is one of the most important but least thought of sort of dimensions in our life, aspects of our life. Um, we look at our life and, and we know there's necessities, right? Like things like food and water and oxygen. Uh, but typically we, we put friendships over in the luxury category, not the necessity, but, but the luxury category. But, but imagine your life as a car for a moment. What if friendship is less like leather seats in a car and more like oil for the engine of your car? What, what if it's more like that? What if, what if life without friends can only take us so far down the road before the car of our life starts breaking down? That's how the Bible sees friendships, as oil for the engine of your life. You, you need friendships like that. Now, this is my angst this morning. We live in a culture that undervalues, in a lot of ways, is just eradicating friendships. That's the cultural sort of norm and the cultural vibe is is just an undervaluing of what Solomon is saying in the Bible is saying, no, it is that important. Friendships is massively important, but our culture undervalues it. Uh, Just think about the cultural dynamics working against friendship. Um, The busyness of life works against friendship. I would bet you if I were to just pry into most of our lives and we were to talk about friends, you, you would have some sort of a gut reaction that's like, who's got time for that? I mean, who's got time to make a friend? I I don't have time for for these things. Business works against friendship. Uh, The entire design of suburban life works against friendship. Uh, Think about suburban life. People pull out of their garage early in the morning. They typically commute to work. They pull back into their garage late in the evening. And if they come out of the castle of their house at all, it's to the backyard, not the front. Suburban life is is working against friendship. Technology works against friendship. Technology creates artificial friends, right? That's that's what it does. It's it's very similar to pornography. Artificial friends feel just enough like real friendship 
that, that we become unwilling to do the hard work of making an actual real friend. Technology works against it. Uh, the idolatry of the perfect family, which is a cultural norm, uh, works against friendship. If, if family is everything, then there is no place for friendship. Friendship cannot be anything if family is, is everything. So, so you put all of that to, together and welcome to 21st century America. Welcome to the culture you're in. Welcome, uh, welcome to a culture that is surviving on a starvation diet of friendship. That, that's our culture. And for most of us in the room, that's my assumption in your life. If you were honest about it, you're probably surviving on a starvation diet of friendship. We're all in that culture working against it. One study showed that in 1985, the average American had three friends. A friend was defined as someone that you could really open up your heart to, confide in, share the deeper things of your life with. In 1985, average American had three friends. By the year 2004, 19 years later, the average had fallen to two friends. But in 2004, one out of four, that's 25% of people, said they didn't have a single friend. One out of four. Didn't, didn't have a single friend. And I don't think it's gotten better from 2004. Um, recently, there was a poll by YouGov. Uh, they're a polling and marketing research company. They found that 22% of millennials said they had zero friends. Roughly one out of four said they didn't have a single friend in their life. Now, my anecdotal evidence uh, affirms that. It it would say that that is true. When when I ask people about friendships, I almost always find people starving for friendships. They might or might not know it, but they're they're just starving for friendships. Uh, When I ask people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s about their friendships, most of them have not made a new friend in 10, 15, maybe even 20 years, a good, deep, rich friend in decades. And, and when I hear that, I, I'm empathetic to that. Uh, when kids showed up in my life, it's like space for friendship vanished, right? And, and most of us probably feel something like that if, if you've got kids in your life. I laughed this week that a guy recently tweeted this. Nobody talks about Jesus's miracle <clears throat> Nobody talks about Jesus' miracle of having 12 close friends in his 30s. <laughs> I agree with that. I, I read that, and I'm like, that is so true. By, by the way, in one month, that got a half a million likes. So, so it's obviously registering somewhere in the life of a 30-year-old. That, that friendships, we're living on a starvation diet. So just ask yourself the question, do you have flourishing friendships? Do you have that? And for married folk in the room, if, if you're married in the room, be careful in the way that you apply that question and answer it. I hope that you can say if you're married that your spouse is your best friend. But if your spouse is your only friend, you are not flourishing with friendships. So, so are you flourishing with friendships? Ask yourself that question. Look at your life. Do you have deep, rich friendships where you can open up your heart and be known that they know you? Do you have deep, rich friendships? You need friends. You need friends because you were made for friendship. You need friends. Let me, let me just emphasize the last word, friend. What is a friend? Uh, there's so much you could say about that. Proverbs highlights two things that I just want to point out. Uh, we could maybe summarize them like this. Constancy and candor. 
This is part of what makes up a friendship. Constancy and candor. Let's take constancy first. That, that, that's a word that, that's just encapsulating uh, that a friend is faithful, a friend is loyal, a friend is trustworthy, a friend is present in your life. This is, again, Proverbs 18:24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. C- closer than a brother. It's interesting to think about siblings. Um, one of the things to note about siblings is y- you don't choose siblings. Siblings have a way of just kind of choosing you, right? Nobody before you were born said, I want that one. No, they're just chosen for you. But friendship is not like that. Friendship is a relationship where you are choosing to push your loyalty and love toward that person. You don't choose siblings, but you choose friends. Proverbs 17, 7, a friend loves at all times. Now, that doesn't mean a friend is there in every waking moment of your life. That would be weird, wouldn't it? Uh, there is a reason why Proverbs 25, 17 exists. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you, right? So there's a reason why that one exists too. So it's not talking about in every single waking moment of life. So w- what does it mean when it said, uh, says a friend loves at all times? Uh, well, it means in all kinds of times. Great times, good times, average times, bad times, the worst of times. If you live long enough in this beautiful but broken world, you're going to experience all of those seasons. And a friend is a person who is present, who endures through all kinds of seasons in your life. What does it mean for a friend to love at all times? It means that there's availability with a friend. A friend is present, and and they're present in a way where they're committed to keeping you from ruin. A friend loves at all times. That that means that that they love you even when it's costly. Even when 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 to love you requires great expenditure of time and money and, and energy to keep you from ruin, a friend will do that for you. That, that, that's what a friend is. Um, I was just talking with Laura last night, uh, we have been married for 17 years, and the first 15 of those years were relatively conflict-free. The last two years, it's been all-out war. And mostly around fostering. It's been a really, really, really hard uh, couple of years for us. And I mean, we were just um, looking back over the last couple of years and, and asking that question last night. Where would we be right now without friends? Would we have made it without friends? I, I don't know. Where, where would we be without friends like this? Just so deeply grateful for them in my life. I agree with J.C. Ryle when he says this. The world is full of sorrow because it's full of sin. It's a dark place. The world is a lonely place. It's a disappointing place. And, and then listen to what he says. The brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joy. Who in here doesn't need that in their life? Someone to half their trouble and double their joy? Friends, they're a constant. There's constancy to friendship. And there's also candor. Candor. This is Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Then it goes on. 
profuse are the, in, are the kisses of an enemy. Now, I love a proverb or a saying like that because it, it, is, it is a vivid metaphor that just drips with kind of this paradoxical sort of language. I, I love that. It, it, it forces you to think. So it, it's faithful friends, and here's the unexpected thing, they wound. They're not kissing, but they're wounding. But, but enemies, on the other hand, it's, it's enemies that are kissing you. It's, it's just a striking metaphor. It forces you to think it through. And part of what it's showing us is what we need from friends and what our friends need from us. Honesty, candor, even when it hurts. This is part of what makes friendship friendship honesty, even when it hurts. Now, why do we need that? Why do we need friends who, who will provide candor in our life? Well, here's the reason. We're all weird. That's the reason. We're all weird, both by nature and by nurture. We're weird, but by nature. Part of what sin does to us is make us weird. It just, it just makes us into weird people. We're weird in our compulsions, our habits, our insecurities, our fear. Sin, by nature, makes us weird. But, but it's not just by nature. It's also by nurture. Our family of origin, I, I don't care if you had the best family that has ever been, it still left you somewhat weird, right? But both by nature and by nurture, we're, we're weird. And here's the worst part of our weirdness. When you live with your weirdness for a long time, you know what it becomes? Normal to you. Our, our weird becomes normal. That's a dangerous thing, isn't it? This is one of the reasons we need friends. Friends are God's gifts to us to make us less weird people. That's why you need a friend in your life. You are going to be weird without a friend. A friend rounds you out. A friend says things to you so you know that what's become normal is actually weird. We all need that. Uh, years ago, I was running a lot with a friend of mine, so we were spending a lot of time together, and uh, on one of our runs, it just gave us a chance to talk a lot, and on one of our runs, he, I remember him saying something like this, uh, you know, we've been friends for a, a long time now, and we're spending a ton of time together, talking all the time, and it's just interesting, because if someone, if someone were to ask me, uh, do I know Rodney? I would say, uh, well, I do, but I don't. For, for some reason, there's so much of you that still feels hidden to me. And I, I just remember in that moment, it, it kind of hurt. It did. That, that candor kind of hurt. Um, but it was a faithful wound. He, he was right. He, he was making me less weird. He was showing me things about myself that, I, that that weirdness had become normal, and I couldn't even see it as weird. I didn't know it existed, but he, he was being faithful, a good friend to me, to help me see that about uh, myself. And in the same way, we all need friends willing, when needed, to harm us and to, to hurt us, to, to wound us faithfully. You need that. I need that. We, we all need friends like that. This is Proverbs 27.6. Again, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. What, what does that second part mean? enemies kissing us. Well, this is, what, this is what people do when they withhold candor, when they don't speak directly toward our weirdness. Uh, if you want a commentary on, uh, on verse 27, uh, chapter 27, verse 6, chapter 29, verse 5 provides the commentary for it. How does that work itself out? Well, Proverbs 29, 5 says this, a man who flatters his neighbor 
spreads a net for his feet. So when we withhold candor and and all we offer is flattery, really it's lies. We see things, but we withhold the things we see that would keep this person from from ruin. We we withhold that. And, And when we refuse candor, rather than keeping a person, a friend, from ruin, we actually spread the net before them for ruin, right? This is why candor is so needed in a friendship. Do you know how we all make decisions in life? This is how I make decisions. I make decisions like this. I make decisions based on what I perceive to be true about me and the world. That's how you make decisions. How we all make decisions based on how we perceive the world and, and ourselves in the world. And, and like all of us, I am so prone to deception. I'm so prone to seeing myself inaccurately and, and the world inaccurately. And every time a friend speaks with candor to me, they are helping open up my eyes so that I can see me better and the world better. And we all need that in our life, for friends who will do that for us. This is Proverbs 27, verse 9. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. This is Proverbs 27, 17. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Right? Proverbs just embeds candor, faithful wounding, counsel, sharpening into friendship. That that means friendship should periodically have friction because you love that person enough to say and to point out what will lead to their ruin. You're unwilling to let them be ruined. So so you say the thing that's leading them there. We we all need that. But both constancy and candor, we need friends like that. And let me emphasize one more thing about friendship. It's not just that we need friends let me just insert two words into that statement. You need the right friends. Not just friends, but, but the right friends. Proverbs is so helpful on this. Proverbs 13, 20 says it this way. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. Every parent teaches this to their kids. If, you, if you're not teaching that to your kids as a parent, you should, right? You should be teaching uh, your kid this. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools suffers harms. And what is true for a 13-year-old is equally true for a 33-year-old, a 53-year-old, an 83-year-old, or a 103-year-old. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. Part of what this this proverb is showing us is that first, we make friends. Second, our friends make us. That's how friendship works. We make our friends, then our friends make us. Um, I used to do student ministry. My first kind of seven or eight years in kind of vocational ministry was with students. And uh, I I remember saying to them consistently, this would be one of the things I would say repeatedly to them, um, to know where you're headed in life, what you're becoming in life, the direction, destination of your life, what what you're becoming, I really don't even need to sit down and talk to you. I mean, we can, but I don't need to sit down and talk to you. All I need to do is to grab your four or five closest friends and talk to them, and I'll know everything I need to know about the direction and destination of your life. Because you choose your friends, or you make your friends, and then your friends make you. That's how friendship works. That's the influence that friends have. 
If our friends are foolish, you just give it enough time and we're going to be idiots, right? That's how friendship works. But on the other hand, if our friends are wise, they, they pull us toward wisdom, that they have a way of making us wise. You need friends, but not just friends, you need the right friends in your life. So let's just pause here and apply this. I want to ask you again, are you rich in friendships? Think about your life. Are, are you rich in friendships, the right friendships? Are you rich with the right friendships in your life? Just, just look at your life, who, who you're relating to, who you're not relating to. Are, are you rich in the right friendships? Now, if your answer is yes to that this morning, thank God for that. Right? I mean, I, I just want to slap high fives with you and cheer you on if that's you. I just want to be an encouragement toward you this morning. Don't underappreciate them. Value them. You should look at them in the eye consistently and, and thank them for being your friend. You should thank God for them and thank them for that. Th those friendships are, are such gifts in your life. About a year ago, I was reading a book on friendship, and uh, this pastor of a generation ago was talking about what makes a friend a friend. And in this last line, I love what he said, just commenting on friendship. He said, uh, you know, a friend makes you realize that having a real friend is almost like having an extra life. And I love that. I think it's so true. And if you've got friends in your life that, that make you feel like you've got an extra life because they're in your life, don't underappreciate them, value them, say that to them. You should write them a note over Thanksgiving, giving thanks to God and them for being a friend. So, so thank God for that if that's you. But if this morning you are poor in, in the right friendships, if that's you, and I'm assuming that's most of us in the room, if you're poor in friendships, I want to get, ask you to do two things. Pray for friends, ask God to give them to you, the right friends, and pursue them. P pray and pursue Pray, ask the Lord for, for good, rich, deep friends. Ask the Lord for that. And then pursue friendship. P pursue it. Here's one of the things we all have to deal with. We have to let go of our passive approach to friendship. Look, if you're going to make a friend, if you're 40 years old in the room, 30, 50, if you're beyond like, you're married, if you're going to make friends, you're going, to have to, you're going to have to prioritize it and pursue it. You're going to have to let go of your passive approach. Do you remember how you made friends as a three, a three four, five-year-old? You remember how you did that? You walked up to somebody and you said, uh, hey, will you be my friend? That's what you did. And, and at some point along the way, we grow out of that because we think it's weird. But just look at your life. How are you doing in making friends, Right? I mean, we all probably need to get a little more weird in our pursuit of making friends. Like, I'm okay if it's that, if it's like that. Hey, I need a friend, and I'd like to offer friendship to, to you. That, that's okay to do that. You're gonna, have to, you're gonna have to prioritize it and pursue it with that sort of intentionality. Now, I wanna end here. You, you need friends. You need the right friends. You, you need the right friends. We, we all do. You need friendship because you were made for friendship. Point number two, and we'll finish here. You need friends, point one, point two. You need the best of friends. You need the best of friends. I, I love how one, um, one pastor says this. He, he says it like this. What, what if you could have a friend who knew you better than anyone, 
better than you even knew yourself? And what if knowing everything, he still loved you and even liked you? And what if you could have a friend who, by his very relationship with you, would transform you to become a better friend to others? You can. His name is Jesus, and he's called the friend of sinners. You can. You can have a friend just like that. In a lot of ways, friendship walks us in to the major storyline of the Bible. The story of the Bible can be told through the lens of friendship. Chapter 1 of the Bible's story. Friendship was received. This is Genesis 1 and 2. God puts us in, a, in our first parents in a garden. And, and Genesis 2 says that, that God walked with our first parents in the cool of the day. That word walk is biblical wording for friendship. God, God befriended. He gifted our first parents his friendship. He, he looked at our, our first parents and said, I want to be your friend. I've created you so that you could be my friend. And our first parents received friendship with God. God gave them what they needed most, his friendship. Chapter 1 of the story, friendship received. Chapter 2 of the story, Genesis chapter 3, friendship ruptured. Our first parents sinned against God, their friend. And in sinning against God, their friend, they broke the friendship. If you remember how Genesis chapter 3 ends, it ends with, a, with an angel protecting, with a flaming sword, protecting the way back to friendship with God. That, that's how Genesis 3 ends. Our friendship was ruptured. And the rest of the Bible, from Genesis 3 on, the rest of the Bible is really trying to answer this question. How can we ever be friends with God again? How's that going to be possible? How, how can our friendship ever be rescued chapter three of the story of the bible friendship restored on the eve of jesus's death he is in an upper room with his disciples and listen to what he says to his disciples in john chapter 15 he says greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends you don't see what friendship looks like Here, here's what it looks like a person laying down their life for their friend you, he goes on to say in verse 14, you, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer, Jesus is saying to his disciples, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. If you want to see the most heroic act of friendship the world has ever known, just look to the cross of Christ. That, that, that's where we look, where Jesus gave his life to reopen the door of friendship with God. That, that is what Jesus is doing on the cross. Greater love is no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus has done for us. On the cross, the triune friendship, God, the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune friendship was ruptured so that our friendship with God could be restored. That's what's happening upon the cross of Christ. Jesus, the best of friends, was forsaken on the cross so that we could be friends with God again. Is that not amazing? That is right at the heart of the good news of Jesus. Jesus, God in the flesh, now looks at his disciples and he says, so, so from now on, because of my life, death, and resurrection, I'm not going to call you servants anymore. No, 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 it, that's not the way we're relating. From now on, I'm calling you friends. 
to be a Christian, to, to be a Christian, here's what it is. It's to know Jesus and be known by Jesus as a friend. That's what it means to be a Christian. And this presses on one of the deepest questions in all of our lives. If you'll slow down and linger and listen to your heart, you'll hear these questions come up and out of your heart. What does God really think of me? In all of my sin and stumbling, weakness and failure, how does God really feel about me? And here's the Bible's answer to all of those who have put their faith in Jesus. The Bible's answer is, Here's the way God feels about you. He loves you as a dear friend. That's how he feels. He loves you as a dear friend. Now, this is the reason that to become a better friend, we first have to befriend the best of friends. I want you, I don't want you to miss that. If you're going to become a better friend, this is the reason. To become a better friend, we first have to befriend the best of friends. See, it's in befriending and being convinced deep down in our bones that, that Jesus really does love us as a dear friend. It, it, it's knowing and believing that that creates the capacity inside of us to become a better friend. It, it's in befriending Jesus and being convinced of his friendship that creates the capacity in us to freely offer friendship, even though we might be rejected, right? This is why it's scary for us to be friends, it's scary to let people in. It's scary that we might be rejected. And it's in befriending Jesus and being convinced of his friendship that we have the emotional capacity to, to risk ourselves on friendship. We can take the risk, and even if we're rejected, we're not, we're not dead. We're not devastated. Befriending Jesus and being convinced of his friendship is, what's, is what creates the capacity to, to be disappointed by friends and yet still remain a loyal friend in their life. If we're going to be a better friend, we first have to be befriended by the best of friends. It's in befriending Jesus, the very best of friends, that we all become better friends. I'll close with this. A guy named Drew Hunter wrote a book on friendship, and in that book he tells the story of Bonnie Ware. She was a nurse, and she... Uh, she served people in the last sort of couple of weeks or days of their life. So, so she is the nurse who comes into that moment and is just walking beside people when they know they're about to die. And she often found herself in conversations with these men and women who, who are just like you, just, just like me, except they know death is at the door. That they know that death is here and it's about to happen. And she found herself walking beside th these men and women in conversation with these men and women. And inevitably, at some point along the way, they would begin to look back and, and reminisce over their life. They would begin to look back and think about regrets that they had had. So she eventually, after listening to, to men and women continually do this, took all of those sort of regrets, condensed them down into a few, and she wrote it in a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. And one of those top five regrets, one of those regrets when people look back over their life went like this. I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. I wish I'd have done that. 
I, I wish I would have prioritized, friends. She went on to say this. Often they wouldn't truly realize the benefits of old friends until their dying weeks, and it wasn't always possible to track those friends down. Many had become so caught up in their own lives that they'd let go of golden friendships. Those golden friendships had just slipped by over the years. There were many deep regrets about not giving friendship the time and energy and effort it deserved. Drew Hunter, in his book, finished that section off by saying this. I just want you to think about this as we close today. Each one of us will eventually step into our final week. Some of us will know when we do. We'll know death is at the door. And if we know that, we'll take a thoughtful glance backward. And we won't wish we'd put more hours at work. Are we, are we tracking with that? When you die someday, you're, you're, you're glancing back over your life you're not going to wish for more of that. We won't wish we took more extravagant vacations. We won't wish we'd spent more time staring at a screen. But we will wish this, that we'd spent more time with our friends. Will you bow with me? I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful this morning and to wipe away the things that would not be helpful for you. Give you just a moment to allow the Lord to speak to you in the, the ways that He needs to this morning. Here is the most important question of your life. Have you befriended the best of friends? That's the most important question. There, there is no more important question that you'll ever answer, that you'll ever wrestle with. Have you befriended the best of friends? And, and the Bible shows us how we befriend Jesus. We come with the empty hands of faith, that we turn from all the things that have broken our friendship, all the sin that has ruptured our friendship with God. But we turn from all of those things and we turn and throw our life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's what the Bible calls faith or belief, turning from our sin and turning to the person of Jesus. It's, it's holding up our lives to God and saying, I am trusting. I am trusting in Jesus alone, his life, death, resurrection, to make me right with you, to restore our friendship, to, to bring me back into friendship with you. I'm, I'm trusting Jesus to do that. Faith is that decisive decision in our life, that decisive move where we turn from our sin and we turn to the best of friends, Jesus. And has that ever happened in your life? 
If not, this would be a great time for you to do that just right there in your seat to, to verbalize to God in your own language. God, I am turning from my sin and I am turning to Jesus, the best of friends. Just there where you are, you can communicate that to God. God this morning stands with arms wide open, ready to befriend you. The most important question of your life, have you befriended the best of friends? For the rest of us, do you have friends, the, the right friends? Oh God, would you help us in this? Would you help us? God, may we all befriend the best of friends, Jesus, in new and deeper ways. I, I, Father, would you just surprise us over the next, next few weeks and months as you're relating to us as a friend? Would you surprise us in what that means? Would you draw us deeper in to friendship with you? God, God would, you, would you give us a curiosity as we explore what does it mean to be a friend of God? God, would you, would you draw us deeper in? Would you help us all befriend you, the best of friends, in new and deeper ways? And would that, by your grace, unlock in this church beautiful friendships, the capacity for amazing friendships? God, would you give that to us? And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.